I am excited about what I have to share with you today. So let's dig into God's word. So we're in 1 Peter, right? So the Apostle Peter writing this letter to encourage Christians living in exile. He is reminding them that God chose them, right? And their newfound identity is in Jesus, is in Christ. So then out of this new identity, how are we to live? He wants to help guide these people with practical instruction on how to live. That's what we want. We want this practical instruction on how to live now that we know Christ. He is encouraging them to persevere and do good following Christ's example. So today, we're going to revisit an idea that was stated earlier in the book and is actually woven all throughout the letter, and that is dealing with the subject of suffering. So dealing with the trials and troubles of life. So last week, Chuck Brooks did a tremendous job bringing us into chapter 4, and I'm going to pick it up from there in uh, verse 12. So let's read our text uh, for today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of glory rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time to ju- for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us pray. Lord, help me today as I desire to communicate your truth found in your word. I want to honor you today with my words, so guide me now as I attempt to equip uh, equip the saints. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the title of today's message is Suffering Well. So Peter is telling us how to endure suffering. We want to learn how to view suffering through a biblical lens. We want to actually view it as a tool of God's grace to help us in our walk with God. The Bible says that suffering is going to make us more like Jesus. So Peter wants us to suffer well. So as we go through the fires of life, as we go through the hard things, he wants us to come out on the other side greatly refined, changed for the better, more like Christ. Don't you love how Peter starts this section of the letter with the word beloved? I mean, you see Peter's pastoral heart coming through right away. Because think about it, what's the human tendency? When something hard happens, what's one of the first things we question? Is God's love for us, right? So Peter uses the word beloved. Know that you are loved 
despite all that's going on around you, all the hard things, you are loved. Peter is calling his readers to suffer well. Now, the theme of suffering has been evident all throughout the letter. So as we, but as we read this section, we're going to see four ways that we are called to respond to suffering. So one is we should expect it. We should rejoice in it. We should evaluate our suffering. And we should entrust ourselves to God. So we need to expect suffering. And we need to rejoice in our suffering. We need to evaluate our suffering. And we need to entrust ourselves to God when we suffer. So let's look at point number one, the first way that Peter calls us to respond to our suffering. So he says we need to expect it. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So a fiery trial, right? An intense difficulty. This life as exiles in a world that's not our own It's going to be hard. Peter is encouraging the church that whoever confesses the name of Jesus, this life is going to be hard and you're going to face trials. You know, being a Christian was not a popular thing in the Roman Empire. And you see, things were about to get even worse for these early Christians. It was like the apostle Peter knew what was coming on the horizon. Life was about to get super hard. You see, a short time after the writing of this letter, Rome burned. For nine days in the summer of AD 64, a huge fire blazed through the city, destroying it. The city laying in ruins, this disaster completely demoralized the Romans and Roman pride took a hit. You know, Rome, the great city of the Roman Empire, was in ruins. So there was a lingering question out there. How did, how did this fire start? So speculation grew that, the Caesar, that Caesar, Nero, actually started the fire. Now, there's no evidence for that, but that's kind of where sentiment went towards. You see, he had a pretty well-known desire that he wanted to kind of renovate the city, and many, he believed that he just started the fire, leveled the city, so that he could rebuild the city to his vision. Yeah. So many blamed Nero as the cause. Whether he was or not, I don't know. But Nero knew danger was on the horizon, and he needed a scapegoat. So he blamed it all on the Christians. You see, Nero knew what he was doing because Christians weren't the most popular people around. They were already the target of unjust hate and slander. Most hated the Christian. Most hated. Uh, most people hated Christians because of lies that were spread about them. Lies like, you know, they were, Christians were accused of having ceremonies where they would eat human flesh and drink human blood. They were, some believe that the holy kiss that Christians used to greet one another was just a form of unbridled passion and sexual perversion. And some believe that the Christians were atheists because they didn't worship Roman gods. So following, so following the great fire, Nero kind of capitalized on this hatred of Christians and blamed them. So he went on the offensive, right? He brutalized the Christians. He punished the Christians. A few examples. He would use Christians as human torches 
to light his nighttime garden parties. He would sow Christians within animal hides and then feed them the predatory animals for entertainment. He put many to death by crucifixion. So this began a horrendous Christian persecution in the Roman Empire for hundreds of years until finally subsiding in 313 with the Edict of Milan. So being a Christian in this period meant that you were going to suffer and that you were going to be persecuted. So it meant that if Jesus was your Savior, you were going to be persecuted. A trial was waiting for you right around the corner. So Pastor Peter wanted to prepare his people well. So he says, Beloved, do not be surprised by this. This is a command, right? It's an imperative statement. Peter knows the human tendency. You know, what's our natural reaction when bad things happen? Like we're shocked. As Peter says at the end of verse 12, we tend to think that something strange is happening to us. Like it's foreign. This is not normal. We ask, why is this hard thing happening to me? Why, why in the world am I going through this? Paul Tripp says it this way, if I could design my perfect week, the week that I would like to repeat again and again and again, it would include no suffering. In fact, it would have no difficulty at all. Nothing would get in my way. My ideas would rule the day. Everyone would applaud my presence. I would have a completely healthy body, a stomach that's always full, a mind that's always entertained. This is what we expect life to be like. We tend to approach life with the idea, and I mean everything, should be hassle-free and suffering-free. No trials, no hardships, clear skies ahead. Think about the world that we live in, 21st century America. There's a theme everywhere that states that you need to take care of you. Life should adapt to you, right? Escape the pain, avoid the pain. Do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. The world tells you that you deserve a hassle-free, suffering-free life. And there's something wrong if you don't have that. Friends, Peter knows that in order for you to suffer well, you need to have the right expectation. You need to not be surprised by the trials of life. We should expect to suffer. Expect the hard things to interrupt your week. Quickly, here are three reasons why Christians should expect suffering. Number one, as Christians, we're not sucked into this delusion that this world is a perfect place. Technology and science can't solve all our problems. Genesis 3, right? We live in a broken and fallen world, and therefore everyone will suffer. No one is exempt. Secondly, Christians understand that they are strangers and exiles in this world. Therefore, the world is going to hate you because you are not like it. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution is to be expected. We are strangers and exiles. And if the world hated Jesus, they're going to hate you too. So the third reason why Christians should expect suffering is that it tests our faith. 
Look at verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, Peter has already used the word fiery and test together back in chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 6, 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know as Christians, God has a much larger agenda for us than our temporary happiness. God absolutely loves us way too much than to let us be satisfied with the trivial things of life. He wants us to be satisfied only in Him and His eternal glory. So one of the tools that God uses to help us grow is suffering. Now hear me clearly, God is good. God does not cause suffering. But He allows suffering in His sovereignty to make us stronger, to make us more like Christ. He is working good in our lives. God never leaves us as we go through the trials, but he uses suffering to refine our faith. Is it really such a surprise that our great God would turn all the horrible things we go through into something for our eternal good? So Christian, don't be surprised. Expect to suffer. Students, those of you that are heading to school in the fall, Soon enough, you're gonna be in school, right? You're gonna be hearing the lectures, reading the books, doing all the things associated with learning. So after you've learned all the things, are you really surprised when your teacher gives you a test or an exam? It's not like after you learn something, the teacher puts this test in front of, front of you, you're not like, what's, what's this? This is so unfair. I didn't expect to get tested on this. The reality is that when you go to school, you expect at some point there's going to be a test. So here we are, right, on Sunday mornings in our Bible studies and our community groups, learning all the things about God's Word, all the theological truths, all the good things. We should not be surprised if God allows circumstances for you to be tested on this material, to actually test your faith. Testing to see if it's merely just head knowledge because you want to seem smart or if it's actually making a difference in the way that you live. These are chances to refine our faith. We should expect to suffer. We should expect testing. So expect to suffer. Moving on. The second thing that we need to do when we suffer is to rejoice in it. Let's look at verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what does this mean when he says we should rejoice when we share in the sufferings of Christ? So to start with, to share in the sufferings of Christ does not mean that our sufferings add anything to the redemptive work of Jesus. He already said back in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So our suffering adds nothing to our salvation. Our salvation was completely paid for by the suffering of Jesus. 
But what does Peter mean by sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Simply, he is just talking about the sufferings that we experience every day as Christians. Now, he's not saying to rejoice in the circumstances themselves. I mean, if you lose your job, don't go around and say, yes, I'm unemployed, or, you know, yes, I got this horrible disease. He's not, he's not saying that, right? So don't rejoice in the circumstances themselves. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to, to pray in the hard times. It is proper to pray for healing and rescue from all the hard things. But the point that Peter is making is to always be rejoicing in the Lord. So let, let your words in your prayers mimic Jesus' words in the garden in Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So rejoice in the Lord and not the circumstance. So even when we're mocked, discriminated against for our Christian faith, Christian, continue to stand up. Don't blend in, whatever the cost. Remember the Lord's words in Luke 6, 22 to 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's love Jesus that much that we're willing to suffer for him. Think of Peter and John when they're dra dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're beaten up for their allegiance to Christ. They were told to no longer speak about him, but they flat out refused, and they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, Peter goes on to say in verse 14, if you are insulted in the name of Christ. Now, the construction in the Greek basically says that, yes, this will be the case. So it's not if, but when you're insulted for Christ's name, Peter is saying that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Actually, in the Greek, there is no you are. So it's just the word blessed. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, blessed, blessed. Peter is being emphatic here because the spirit of God and glory rests on you in a very unique way. So when we come into a relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within us and he lives inside of us. But when you stand up boldly for Christ and you suffer loss because of your love for Jesus, Peter is saying here that the Holy Spirit rests upon you in a very unique way. I mean, it's like a father and son, a father and small child walking along the beach hand in hand. You know, when all of a sudden the father picks the kid up, holds the child over his head and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Now, the child knows he's loved as he's walking hand in hand with the father, but there's something different in that relationship at that moment when the father holds the, kids up, holds the kid up. So it is with God. God's with you day to day. He's walking with us. But in our suffering, when we stand up for him, we experience him differently. I was recently reading a story about this missionary, Helen Roosevelt. Um, Helen Roosevelt was a Christian doctor who served over 20 years in Zaire, Africa. Um, in 1964, a revolution overwhelmed the country. She and her co-workers were thrown into prison, and for five and a half months, they were tortured and suffered all kinds of brutality. And for a season, she had thought that God had forsaken her. 
But then she was overwhelmed with a sense of his presence, and she recorded what God was saying to her in that moment. God said this, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, a, a privilege of being identified with me. And this is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings, they are mine. All I ask is the loan of your body. God is with you, God walks with you, and he is ever present in the days of trouble. So don't be surprised by your sufferings. Rejoice in your sufferings. It's gonna help you yearn for that promised eternal glory. Do you think about heaven much? I mean, where all of this is going, what does all this mean? I think most of us in here would probably say, yeah, heaven's probably a pretty good place. But do you really know what the Bible says, says about heaven? It's something to truly be excited about. Take time, do the research. We endure because we know in the end, God makes all things right. He wins. It's gonna be like waking up from a nightmare for many of us. You know, Greg and Reese are teaching a class on heaven, and it's been a real popular study because I think it's helping many have a vision for that finish line. Knowing where you're going is going to help you endure now. So you're sharing in Christ's sufferings now, but guess what? You will also be sharing in his eternal glory. So we should expect to suffer. We should rejoice in our suffering. Thirdly, we need to evaluate our suffering. Now, Peter, being the good pastor that he is, knows how easy it is for us in our sinfulness to misunderstand the sources of our suffering. When we suffer, we need to do some evaluation before God. And Peter is saying here that there could be three sources of our suffering. Peter, first, Peter says that our suffering could be a result of our own sin, you know, from our own stupidity. We can bring so much pain into our lives by the way we live and conduct our lives. Peter says in verse 15, but let, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I mean, that's, that's quite a spectrum. You have murderer, thief, evildoer, and then meddler, you know, meddler, a busybody, someone who interferes in affairs that they really have no business being a part of. Peter knows how easy it is for us to rationalize our suffering and then justify it as Christian suffering, when it's really not that at all, when it's just the result of your own sinfulness. Now, I remember years ago talking with someone, no, no one here, someone that had left the church, but I remember talking to someone years ago, and they called me and they said, you know, Rick, I lost my job, and I, I, I lost it because of my Christian faith, you know? So we, I remember talking to him, we met and talked, and the more and more we talked, it became more and more evident that this person was just a lousy employee, you know? He wasn't really exactly a rock star at work. He, he was lazy at work, complained, kind of undermined the boss, wasn't a team player, really had nothing to do with his Christian faith, but rather just a poor work ethic. So we can suffer because of our own sinfulness. You know, secondly, we can suffer because of our identification with Jesus. He says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in that name. Now, interestingly, the term Christian is not used that much in the Bible, uh, I think three times. And it's not like the early followers of Jesus chose that name to identify themselves. You know, they were known as followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the most common way Christians would describe themselves is part of the way. So where did this name Christian actually come from? You know, so we're told in the book of Acts that the term Christian was first used for believers by non-believers at Antioch. The term Christian was actually a derogatory term that non-Christians would use. So if they were looking to insult you or mock you, they would call you Christian. I mean, Christ died on a cross. And the cross and crucifixion was considered absolutely shameful in Roman society. Only murderers, only thieves, only crooks died on a cross. Cicero, Cicero wrote once that you shouldn't even discuss crucifixion in polite Roman society. So that's how shameful crucifixion was. So when they called you a Christian, they were insulting you. It, Christian meant that you're identified with that man of shame, that criminal, that one that died on a cross, the one that died the criminal's death. But Peter is saying, don't be ashamed by that name. Embrace the name. Embrace being identified with Jesus. Don't distance yourself from that name. So today, as the world becomes more and more intolerant towards Christians, Peter would encourage you to embrace the name like never before. Uh, struggling with fear of rejection is a reality for many of us, right? The fear of being rejected by friends, coworkers, family. Uh, you know, many of us have experienced the exclusion, the eye rolls, you know, being talked about behind your back. We know how it goes in some circles, but we need to fear God over man. Peter says that we must glorify God in that name. We need to embrace the name Christian. It speaks of our Lord who through his death won a mighty victory on our behalf. But there could be a third source to our, of our suffering. So not only could we suffer because of our own sin or our identification with Jesus, but we can suffer because God is disciplining us. God's discipline. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So in these verses, Peter is using an argument from the lesser to the greater. He is saying that if judgment begins with the household of God, Christians, then what's it going to be like for non-Christians? I mean, this verse is rather shocking, right? This verse is talking about a judgment that can come upon believers, that can come upon us, right? Now, this isn't an eternal judgment. You know, we're insecure in Christ. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no eternal judgment waiting for believers. But according to the Bible, there's a purifying judgment, a purifying discipline that can come upon believers. The word scarcely doesn't mean like, whew, whew, we, just, we just made it. Christ just had enough. Christ barely got us in. It doesn't mean that at all. It just basically means like with difficulty. 
As God's people, we enter through the narrow gate. The pathway to glory is full of opposition and suffering. It is a difficult path, so with difficulty. Let me take you to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. Malachi 3, 1 to 4, and I'm going to read that for you. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand up when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So here we have the scene of the Lord coming into his temple to purify it. So and now Peter is saying that it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. So some commentaries believe that Peter is picking up on this imagery here from Malachi and applying it to the church, that God is coming to purify his church, to discipline his church. You know, some of the sufferings we experience can be God's discipline for us. God's going to allow you to experience times of difficulty in order to purify you, in order to prune you. John 15, Jesus says that I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. And even every good branch that bears good fruit gets pruned, so it bears more good fruit. So if you're a fruitful branch, you can expect more pruning. Let's listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon as he was watching a tree get pruned. The apricot tree at 2828 Hill Heights Park was trimmed back so much I wondered if the branches and leaves would ever grow back, let alone the leaves. We ended up next year having apricots coming out of our ears. Mom made apricot pie, jam, and we had fresh fruit, and there was still an abundance left for the birds. Take heart and believe that if God is allowing you to go through a season of suffering, it's an expression of his purifying love. I mean, it may look ugly now. You may be saying like, why, why did you need to trim that branch? That branch was just fine by me. But God is the one that he knows what he's doing. He's building a masterpiece. Soon enough, there will be beauty and more fruit. The reality is, if Jesus is Lord of your life, he's not going to leave you where you're at. He's committed to you. He is committed to make you more like Christ. You're going to find at the end of a pruning season, you're going to bear fruit more than ever before. So don't grow resentful. Don't grow angry. Because honestly, a more fruitful life awaits you. So evaluate your suffering. You know, in 2007, 2008, I was heavily into real estate. I was flipping homes. Uh, I was doing well, and I had my plan. You see, back then, I was feeling the Lord pulling me towards ministry. But Rick had his grand plan, right? So the first thing I was going to do is make millions in real estate, then go into ministry. You see, I had a love for money and comfort in my heart, 
and it was coexisting with my love for Jesus. You know, I was trying to have two masters, and that, that, that never works. So God sent me his purifying love, you know. Soon the bottom fell out of the market, and I was deep in debt. I was devastated. This was my fiery trial. God allowed me to experience the trial because he knew it was the best thing for me. And through that trial, he showed me grace upon grace. I mean, it hurts being in the fire. But just like a piece of metal and how the fire separates the pure from the impure, through the tears, <laughs> through many tears, the impure was burned away. One God, the true God, remained in my heart. It was a season that I value highly, although going through it was very rough. Because you, you see, like in easy times, false gods can kind of exist with the real God in your heart and you're really unaware of it. But in the fire, it's the hard things that exposes them and exposes the weaknesses. God was purifying me. He was pruning me. And like I said, like it, it hurt. But in the end, I'm eternally grateful. So evaluate your suffering, right? Go to God in prayer. Maybe you're suffering here today and it's because of your own sin. And you need to take responsibility. Confess your sin, repent, and move on. Maybe you're suffering because of your identification with Jesus. Keep praying to God for the courage to stand up for his name. And maybe some of you are in here and you're suffering because God is pruning you. He's pruning you back so that you'll bear even more fruit. Let me tell you, when you're on the other side of the fiery trial, you're going to look back and realize that you know God in a more deeper way than you've ever known him before. Think of Abraham. When he went through that test in Genesis 22, God said, take your one and only son Isaac and sacrifice him. After that experience, Abraham had a deep revelation of who God is. He said, now I know God, you are my provider. You'll never know God like that unless you're willing to be pruned. So evaluate your sufferings. The final thing we need to do in suffering is that we need to entrust ourselves to God. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the word entrust here is a, is a banking term and it means deposit for safekeeping. So when you suffer, turn to God and say, God, here is my life. I hand it to you for safekeeping. Where else are you going to go? Where else is your life safe? What else is going to protect you? Your job? Popularity? Money? Although some, these things can give you temporary pleasure, they're not going to last. Money. I mean, anyone that's had any amount of money in this market over these past several months knows the danger in trusting in money because it just kind of flies away. It's not, it's not going to help you in the day of trouble. Your life is safe in the hands of God. Your life is safe in the hands of God. Because what does it say? He is a faithful creator. The God who made all things is the one that you're giving your life to. The one who sustains the universe is worthy of your trust. 
The God who gave his one and only son for, to ransom you from your sin is worthy of your trust. So if he pursued you while you were an enemy, how much more is he going to care for you as a father? And when, you and when you give your life over to God, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me take you back to 1 Peter 2, 21 to 22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffer, suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Get the imagery that Peter is giving us here. Jesus on the cross, Peter mocking him, saying, you saved others, save yourself. When people were mocking him on the cross, he didn't repay insult for insult. But what did he do? He suffered. Did he threaten? No, he did not threaten. When his hands were being nailed to the cross, when they were mocking him, when they were treating him horribly, what did he do? He didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He says, Father, in your hands, I now commit my spirit. What an example, what a savior we have. And Peter says that we need to walk in those steps. So when you go through suffering, go to God and say, God, I may not understand everything that I'm going through here, but I don't need to. My, hand, my life is in your hands. You're the faithful creator. I hand you my life, I give you my life, I trust my life to you, Father. Take it, take it, right? Where else are you gonna put it? It's the only safe place. And he will take it, and he can be trusted because he is the faithful creator. So, how are we to respond to suffering? Expect it, rejoice in it, Evaluate it and entrust yourself to God. Worship team, you can come up. You know, but if I'm honest, do you know what I tend to do? Instead of expecting to suffer, constantly surprised by it, I'm like, why me, Lord? Do you do that? Instead of rejoicing in suffering, I'm going to complain about my suffering so everyone within my circle it's going to know about my sufferings. Poor, poor Rick, right? Instead of evaluating my suffer, suffering, you know what I tend to do? I try to escape my suffering. Rather than going prayerfully before God and asking him, what do you want me to do? Instead of entrusting myself to God, I try to cope with suffering on my own strength. And that never ends well. Take heart, Christian, you're being purified. So as we are in the fire, those of us who have Christ as our savior, being molded more and more into his image, one day there'll be no more suffering. Eternal glory awaits. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. So persevere, Christian, and suffer well, knowing that it's for a redeeming purpose. And all the hard things that you're going through are not outside of God's sovereign will for your life. God's word is good, amen?